to Friends and Music with me, Brian Doherty, a podcast about all things music for those who are obsessed by it. I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast on your chosen platform. Most importantly, thank you for listening. I'm very excited today because this is our first episode of Season 2. If you have not heard Season 1 yet, I encourage you to listen at your convenience. In addition, I am extremely honored by our guest today as we feature composer, musician, and producer Stefan Gelfus in his first interview ever. In our conversation, Stefan admits that there may be printed quotes or that he may have sat with an artist during an interview in the past over the years, but that until now, he has never agreed to a full-length feature interview. So what compelled Stefan to step out into the spotlight at this moment in time, you might ask? The Good Rats. Thank you, Stefan, for coming out and agreeing to this interview. I am truly honored. Stefan Gelfes has worked with hundreds of artists spanning over five decades, including Meatloaf, The Allman Brothers, John Waite, and Cool and the Gang, to name only a few. He was also the owner of the House of Music in West Orange, New Jersey, a recording studio where dozens of classic albums were made. One such album Stefan produced at the House of Music was Tasty by the Good Rats. I first saw the Good Rats in the late 70s at the Asbury Park Convention Center. They were the opening act on a bill with Dickie Betts and Eddie Money. At first glance, they were an odd band with a caveman kind of look. The lead singer sported gym shorts and wore knee-high tube socks. Most of the set, he swung a baseball bat and sometimes smashed a metal garbage can with that bat. The rest of the band looked like they'd surely be on a modern day no-fly list. They played their asses off and were beyond entertaining. They exuded humor and irony. The songs were a twisted mix and reminiscent of Kiss or Black Sabbath with a touch of George Gershwin. Their set was tight, well-polished. Background vocals were impeccable, in tune and well-rehearsed with intricate arrangements and harmonies. These guys were nothing short of total pros and played a 30-minute set with intent to slay the audience. And that they did. Soon after, I discovered that they were popular staples in the bars in northern New Jersey near my hometown of Randolph. I would go on to see them live many times, mostly at the showplace in Dover, where they were regulars. They never disappointed, and I've been a fan ever since. From the very first moment that Stefan and I spoke together, it was all good rats. It seemed that after many years, he needed an outlet and to be heard about the good rats. The faucet opened on how they worked together, how they produced a body of such unique albums of songs. From my end, my head was swimming with questions that my mouth couldn't speak fast enough. I simply had too many. 
The conversation you're about to hear is admittedly a bit long, yet I couldn't justify editing it into two separate parts, as the interview flowed naturally from one point to the next. I hope you enjoy it. Let's listen in. I always like to start, I mean, I feel like a lot of my listeners are really all over the map. So from the world of education, some are music enthusiasts, some are just casual listeners. So I'd like to bring everybody in and ask you to just start by introducing yourself and what it is that you do and just a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm Stefan Galsis and uh, I am a musician and composer and producer. Uh, and I've done that my whole life. <laughs> my God, a long time. That's great. So, um, and, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not like real big on kind of hyping myself, but, but if anybody does Google, there's so much stuff I've done. It's really hard to pick out like what exactly, but I music when I was young and, uh, I guess my first professional gig, I was, I guess, 13 or 14 years old, you know, in a, a little band. And um, I'm from down in Georgia and uh, in a little band and, and also playing in church. Right. Uh, and playing in church was the most important single thing for me for influence. Uh, and, and, uh, is your principal uh, instrument guitar? Yeah, principal instruments, guitar, guitar and bass, but really guitar. And, but, you know, all kinds of all country sort of music things like a mandolin and mandocello and dulcimer and banjo and all of those sort of right. Georgia country hillbilly instruments. So, uh, and, and I, uh, I, got very fortunate got i got kind of known locally and in uh the church circuit as a musician uh from being very young and uh that helped and then um in high school i had continued to play making a local name for myself but what does that mean down in the hills of georgia a local name is you know some cows know you, some sheep know you, and your friends know you, you know, and you play at church socials, which have the same 18 people, right. but you play every Friday, so you're famous. Right. Uh, but then I got um, uh, a scholarship to New York University, nice. and uh, out of the blue for, for playing baseball, and uh, I got to New York, and you know, you got to understand small town, Georgia, New York, big mm -hmm. change. This is, you know, this is the late sixties and Greenwich village. Yeah. We, I was going to ask if you were living in the village. Yeah. The school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it, when you go, when you're on a scholarship, they always mandate that you have to have dorms. Mm -hmm. They want to keep track of you and make sure you actually go to class and do all that stuff which I found ways of getting out of because all I wanted to do then was, so now I'm down in the village in the end of the sixties. Now people historically 
I don't know how many people are still alive that could remember that, but that was a time when music was exploding down there. You mm. and Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, they had all these people that were Joan Baez, uh, Arlo Guthrie, uh, all of the, uh, Pete Seeger, all of the, the stars of Americana folk music, because folk music was big. And it was just beginning to have those other bands like the Love and Spoonful. Mm -hmm. And they were they were also beginning where where folk was getting a rock and edge to it. Yeah. Uh, and this this is prior to Bob Dylan going electric. Right. Which which was like sacrilege. I mean, the whole, I mean it's hard to imagine now what an impact that made but when he did that it was like international news yes yes now nobody would give a shit yeah <laughs> and who cares so you're so, in the middle of like the bleaker street scene yeah i got and nyu is right down there yeah. so i'm down there 24 7 and uh, i learned that i liked playing more than class and and i got known pretty quickly because i could play i was this perfect stepping stone between this folk music and this rock influence because I played both and I played all the folk stuff. So I, I, I got to play with people like Peter, Paul and Mary and I got to play and uh, I met a, a through gigging with Bob Dylan and in the, in the background, he played Gertie's Folk City and mm -hmm. guitar. I mean, I would just hire pickup gigs to play with these people who, Ooh, they were just an endless array of them. It wasn't like anything that was memorable for them or me because these weren't super famous. It was just the circuit. We all knew each other. And uh, uh, I got found out, I guess, by producers in New York that I could play almost anything. And I had a good ear. So... Uh, I started getting hired as a session player. And this mm -hmm. was just when session players were beginning. Uh, and and my reputation kind of spread. Uh, and it spread to the point where uh, I got an introductory meeting set up because this guy, Albert Grossman, who managed Peter Paul and Mary and Bob Dylan and Janis Joplin and the band. And owned Bearsville Studios. Yes, and owned Bearsville Studios. Yeah. <laughs> he owned all of Woodstock <laughs> yes, and Bearsville. It's like he owned it all. And uh, he kind of just, he discovered me. Uh, and uh, through Quirks of Fate, got introduced to people at Warner Brothers Records. And lo and behold, a few months later, I was made the first East staff producer for Warner. So I went from like hanging out and playing in the folk scene to a staff producer at Warner very nice. in wow. a very short amount of time. And, and the reason being that Warner was looking to go into a more rock world. So when, this was when Warner and Reprise had just joined together. So our biggest selling artists at the time were Frank Sinatra and Peter Paul and Mary. I was just going to say, wasn't Reprise Frank Sinatra's label? Yep, yeah. yep, yep. It was Frank Sinatra and uh, Joe Smith and Mo Austin. 
And at that time, Teddy Templeman, Lenny Warrenker, mm-hmm. they were producers, uh, myself, and uh, uh, and here, so here I come from this folk country rock background. And the first major album that I produced was Peter Yarrow, That's Enough for Me. Oh, wow. Was and that Peter his first Yarrow. solo album? Yeah. So that's Peter, Peter Balmary. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the first record that I did. And um, it got amazing response. And I also toured with him uh, playing. And so it kind of solidified my name and gave me some latitudes. And this kind of brings us up to the point at which the Good Rats enter. So now I've done Peter Yarrow's album. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was uh, a guy who worked at Warner in promotion, I believe. His name was Mike Oliveri. And Mike Oliveri was, I believe, kind of managing the Good Rats at this time. So he told me, I have to come see this band. Got to come see this band. Uh, and so now I'm a staff producer and I don't have much time to do anything. Can I just interrupt here? So yeah. for those, if we just take a step back, the Good Rats had had an album out before, before this time. Are, and and are, you, are, yeah. you, are you in like the early 70s right here? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. had you known of the Good Rats at this point, or was this your first introduction to them? It was my, I had, here's what I knew about the Good Rats. They had a billboard on the West Side Highway for this album, the first album, which okay. is called Good Rats. Yeah. So I was aware of the band because um, I, 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 I was, Music aficionado, I like every type of music, classical, mm-hmm. country, funk, it, it didn't matter to me. I liked it all. I liked for different reasons. And I liked the idea of being a producer and a session player because I never, I always wanted to be behind the scenes. I had no interest in fame, stardom. I wanted to be in the background. And I liked being, I liked too many different types of music to get stuck in a band. Right, because I've been in bands before, and they were limited to what I wrote or the other band wrote, and so it's limiting to me. And I just, I wasn't good at, it, I wasn't good at, at sticking to one thing as I got mm-hmm. bored. You know, right. remember I was very young at this time in my teens, and uh, the the so the Good Rats get presented to me. I, I'd known about them and. I had heard the first record of tracks of it, and it was okay. Mm-hmm. I, I thought the lead singer sounded way too much like Burton Cummings oh, from yeah. the Get Through. That's a, that's a very good likeness uh, analogy. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought you know I, I I thought there were just identity issues. You know, it was like they were trying to figure out who they were because they they had fragments of interesting stuff. Do you know the original record?
I mean, there are good things about it, uh, but it overall just didn't impress me. You know, there wasn't decide what they were, nor were they varied enough to be called, you know, uh, multi. And it was just, it was, it, it just was, it, I think later I understood it was a problem of production, you know, that it's no, nobody had been there to pick and guide. So anyway, I got um, Mike Oliveri, uh, finally got me and convinced me to go with him to see them doing a show out in Long Island, a place called My Father's Place. Uh, and uh, I think that was in Baldwin, Long Island. And uh, I went out and they were like almost a house band there. And mm -hmm. it was, I came out and it was like religious furor around this band. You know, and then and I'm watching them, and I'm. It's okay. It's loud, and the PA sucks, and the acoustics are terrible. And you know, about five, six songs in, they start throwing rubber rats out, <laughs> and I'm like, which became a signature of theirs. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's it's all a little cheesy to me. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I'm very authentic. You mm -hmm. know. I'm, I'm like coming from authentic Americana music. And that's my background is like, you know, Woody Guthrie was a hero of mine, Pete Seeger. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are my heroes with these great songwriters. Uh, but, uh, and, and about two thirds or three quarters of the way into the show, they play a song called Songwriter. And that did it for me. That was like all this crap and then this amazing piece. Yes. It's like, wow. So it's, um, a, it's a ballad for those who, for those who, this is, this is on the album Tasty, correct? Yeah. And yeah. it's a, it's a ballad, one of Peppy's ballads, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, it's about and it's about what it seems, songwriter. It's about being a songwriter and uh, great lines in it. Songwriters talks about pumping gas at night just to survive, and it was autobiographical. And this was Peppy. This was truth, and I thought I always like looked for truth, and that's when it got me. So I decided to stick around a little bit, and went backstage, and I met the group and there were two brothers who really dominated it peppy the lead singer and mickey did background vocals and uh played guitar and they were really the dominant forces in the band mm -hmm. uh followed by uh the, i'd say the third most important joe franco the drummer mm -hmm. he was very musically influential in the band to an incredible drummer yeah i mean that, that i noticed joe and i are still in touch he's still a great drummer he's still an amazing talent he's still um he's just one of those gifted 
heavy drummers, you know, yep. and uh, and became I kind of came became friends with them over time. But but um, I got interested, and so I basically set up a, a rehearsal to go to rehearsal, and uh, in the rehearsal. I began to hear fragments of these great songs, just great. And, you know, we, we started working on arrangements. We didn't do a, a great deal of rehearsal before, before me deciding that I wanted to sign this act. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had the power to sign acts at Warner. And when I came up and I, brought it up at a meeting that I now remember Frank Sinatra's label Peter Paul and Mary and I'm bringing up this band the Good Rats and you got to pitch them at a meeting <laughs> yes and with all due respect at this point in time bands were really cute you know they were like the boy band era that came about later so this was prior to where there could be a Jethro Tull or you could be ugly and be in a band. It wasn't. You, right. you, cute was really important. So the Good Rats, I guess the politest thing to say is they weren't exactly cute. Okay? <laughs> these are not boys you brought home to meet your mother. Yeah. Okay? No, these are people you wouldn't want to meet in a, in a back alley. Did you get to, but, but before we get to this point where you're pitching them to the label, did you get to know them enough to, to kind of suss out like who they were? What were they doing? Were they, were they working odd jobs? Were they, were they living in Long Island? Were they piecing it together? I mean, what, what was yeah, the They scenario? were living in Long Island. They were, <clears throat> they were making, they were making money at the clubs, but they were just playing Long Island. Mm -hmm. That's it. But they were a phenomenon in Long Island. You know, they were, at this time, it was the Good Rats. There was the Hassles, which is Billy Joel's band. And there were a couple of other, Twisted Sister. And not yet, really. It was just a little bit before Twisted Sister. Mm -hmm. So it was this, this Long Island scene and mm -hmm. a very uh, incestuous scene of competitive love-hate among the groups and all vying for uh, a slice of a real limited market. It's just Long Island. Came on early yesterday A day ahead of when she said Found me with another girl Caught us lying both in bed She didn't say a word She acted like it didn't even face up She opened 
up being one of the one of the worst things and best things for the good rats. Um, but but um, so I pitched them, and the response to say tepid would have been an exaggeration beyond belief. It was just blank. What's what songs were on the demo? Did did you have to? Was there a listening session? Uh, yeah. Um, there was songwriter, there was Fireball Express, uh, there was Engine Joe and 300 Boys. I believe those are the ones. All great, all great songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, 300 Boys was a bizarre song about yeah. basically pedophilia. Yeah. I mean, it's I just... rock anthemic song right oh yeah, yeah. And, and powerful yeah. and and way ahead of its time in exposing yes. this peppy's view because peppy wrote all the songs yeah and and it, his his view of life was different and he was very bold at this time talking about way out of its time about pedophilia in schools and churches and, you know, uh, a, a powerful song. But remember, this is a time of cute bands, the Beach Boys, mm -hmm. and this is what, and now I'm bringing a band that's got Engine Joe, Fireball Express. Right. And I mean, Engine Joe, just the I-N-J-U-N already extraordinarily offensive. Yes. Yeah. 300 boys and so so they were not peppy didn't write for the critics he wrote for himself he wrote for his own view and so the response was extremely bad the meeting was like <laughs> no 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 so there was a, a, a bit more lobbying and finally uh as part of my deal i had the right to I didn't have to get approval to sign an act. Dangerous to go that route, very dangerous. But sometimes it was like, and this is the beginning of my career. Right. So, so my 
my first album, I produced is Peter Yarrow and, and gets all this incredible response and sells huge. And so, okay, now album number two I'm going to do for Warner is the good rats. It's tasty, <laughs> tasty by the good rats. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, I decide to follow my convictions and I sign him, make a deal, and the Good Rats are part of the Warner label. And uh, we went in and we began to record Tasty. So uh, a process that from, from me meeting him to signing and probably, I can't remember exactly, but probably three to six months. It okay. took some time. It took some time to get it done. So. But in that time, I got to know Pepe more and to know more of the songs and to appreciate what he was about and the honesty as a musician and a songwriter. And also, I got very close with Mickey, um, his brother, mm -hmm. younger brother, who was very instrumental in arrangements and the guitar arrangements. And uh, he, and just, he was the antithesis of that. Uh, he, he very cultured, very into collecting antiques. Oh, wow. Finals and no, just. Sounds like they're from different families. <laughs> oh, yeah, different worlds. But there were a tight Italian family, two brothers fought and We'll get into the fighting aspects of the Good Rats because I want to know about it. Yeah, they had no problem fighting, um, and so we began Tasty, and and Tasty was a uh, a challenging record to make. Where did you guys record that? At my studio, House of Music in West Orange. That that was your studio. Yeah, yeah. That so did you live in West Orange? No, no. So no, you, I. I lived in, uh, at that time, I was living in uh, Tuxedo Park, New York. Okay. And then I, I moved out of the city and moved up to Tuxedo Park because the city had become too much. When you're, when you're working in the city and living in the city, it was just too much for me. I needed some space, yes. so I got a place in Tuxedo Park that was for my weekends, but I ended up staying. I had a place in New York, but I ended up staying in Tuxedo Park. And then the, the, the two places became too disparate and I moved to Edgewater and mm -hmm. it was directly across from the George Washington Bridge from New York. So, uh, so that I was really living in New York again. Uh, and, and the, Good Raps were commuting from Long Island to West Orange. Uh, every we, day. Yeah, we wow. recorded every day, and that's a long slept. That's yeah. an hour and a half drive each way. Mm -hmm. But but I had the advantage of being in my studio that I could take as long as I wanted. So we began making the record. And they really didn't have studio chops. They had live performing chops. And the studio recording is really than live performance. It's real different. 
and we're at a time now that there had not been any heavy rock and roll records. There really hadn't been anything as heavy as the Good Rats coming from New York. Uh, other things were circling around like Vanilla Fudge, but you had groups like the Rascals, and they weren't heavy like the Good Rats. Indeed, yeah. So, uh, and the Good Rats were very New York. I mean, very. They were definitely not a West Coast band. Uh, and so we, in the studio, began the creative process with the struggles and fights, and uh, because they they can be very difficult as far as accepting direction. Mm. They had in their mind, when I say they, Pepe. Pepe, very strong-willed. A genius, but very yeah. strong-willed. And rightfully so. That's his song. His life's work and his big opportunity and they had trust issues because they'd been screwed like every young band gets screwed. All right. Uh, they'd been screwed around. They'd had a record come out and instead of fame and fortune, nothing happened. Uh, and so now they're going at second shot at, at it, which at that time bands didn't get that. And this was five so, years later, by the way, too. So some time had passed. Oh, yeah, it's five years later. Yeah, they, they, nobody cared about it. Because the first record was interesting, but it wasn't really heavy. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it was kind of mishmashy. Somebody tried to water them down to make them more acceptable. And you didn't have the heavy guitar and guitar arrangements. And, you know, you did, just didn't have... And and what appeared about Pepe and his writing was the incredible breadth of his influences from Gershwin, Fred Astaire, and Ginger Rogers, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, every rock and roll band, uh, Jethro Tull. He was very influenced by Jethro Tull. Um, Burton Cummings, believe it or not, was also. I want to see this house burn. I want to see it tumbling down. I'm going to watch the white burn from her eyes. Well, I'm going to light the fuse. Wow, yeah. I'm through paying my dues. I refuse to kick off my Pepe's voice and Burton Cummings' voice had same vibrato, mm -hmm. same nasal tonality, same, you know, both great singers in different ways. Pepe a little bit harder, but, but there were similarities. 
what, what was what what did Pepe play? What was his medium to write and communicate? Um, he played two finger piano. Okay. He couldn't really play an instrument. He wrote the songs and melodies, et cetera, in his head. And then he'd have basic ideas. And then Mickey would get involved to embellish on those chords and the structures. So to drill down, what, what, like how would a song come about? Would, would he crystallize this idea in his head, sing it to his brother while he's yeah. playing two-finger piano, and Mickey would... Would, sus, would would flesh out the chords and the changes but underneath yeah, yeah some 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 of the harmonic changes are very advanced yes well some of those i mean you know i did contribute to some of those uh, you know? i was going to ask you that <laughs> yeah i mean because i i saw this gershwin thing and i was a big gershwin fan and so was peppy and so i thought okay let's add some of this and and mickey had this amazing ear for harmony and if you listen to some of the guitar harmony some of it is straight out of the of the sort of gershwin era of 10 songwriting Snappers! incredible harmonics that were like from big band jazz yes many of the guitar chords we worked on to kind of sound like more like horns you know like yes. big band horn arrangements you and know that's one thing that i can't the the only other genre that i can think of that used guitars like that would be southern rock yeah that yeah. that relied on guitars in that way but it's something that i miss hearing from arrangements in any type of music is yeah. the use of guitars in that way and i for the life of me if people are always going back to reference why they should be youngsters should be referencing this kind of position now like guitar used to be the forefront of rock and roll and now it's not yeah you know it just isn't um it's like you know what pop music is today 
is it's very limited, you know, we start looking and talking about what a gifted songwriter Taylor Swift is. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, God bless her. She's talented and all, but this is not any new ground being broken. This is not, you know what I mean? Where it's very, it's, it's pablum. You know what I mean? It is just bland and it's, it's tried to make accessible to the masses and uh, it, it seems very premeditated and, and constructed. And oh, absolutely. Because when I've made every record I've made, the huge hits and the, the ones that weren't so big, I approached them all the same. And I never approached a record trying to make a hit record. Never. I always tried to make a great record. That's what I wanted. Just make the best record I could with what I had, which were these players with good rats and some incredible talent between John the cat, John Gatto and uh, Mickey. So is Mickey aware at at this time? Is is he cognizant of how he's using the guitar instrumentally or are you helping him along? Are you, are you kind of sitting there coaching him to come out with it? Oh yeah. We definitely, it was very collaborative. You know what I mean? I'm definitely pushing ideas out to him and expanding. But, you know, once once he got in his brain the possibilities and that when we recorded guitars, it would be, Pep would be around, but he'd get bored. So it'd be just me and Mickey in mm-hmm. the studio. And then Mickey saw this freedom and he began to go with it. And so once the doors were open for him to be told you can do this you can you, this is you, you've got the freedom to do what you want here um he bit um now john the cat could play anything but the arrangements came primarily from mickey i mean certainly john had some input in some of the harmonies or anything but mostly mickey had it worked out did did the whole band stay for all the tracking what was it those days or did they all split after mm-hmm. No, the, everybody in that band came to every session. Wow. Even if they're just hanging out. Yeah, That's this great. is before, yeah, nowadays <laughs> bands come up, one guy comes in and, yeah. you know, they don't talk to each other. They don't even see, the, you know, they're, they're busy with their lives. Uh, but, but no, they were, they were there. They were very committed as a band to being a band. They were, they were proud of being the Good Rats and, Somewhere in the middle of doing all this, we realized we had a special record. It was, you know, and uh, when when we got done with the record, and the record took some time. I think the record took like three or four months to make. Wow. Yeah. So a long time. Those guitar parts took a long time. So, and back then, you have to understand, back then, budgets for rock and roll records, not such that you got three or four months in the studio. So uh, we went way over budget and I had to do all kinds of manipulation with Warner to conceal that so I could keep my job as a producer. Mm-hmm. You know, I used up my demo budget. I used up other things. I gave away a ton of time. I just, because I, I saw that this was, a classic record that we, we had a chance for something really special and uh, when 
when it was done and it came out, uh, New York had just had a station begin called WNEW. Mm-hmm. It was playing rock and roll. It, it and began as an AM station and then moved over to FM, right? Yeah, and when yeah. it became WNEW-FM, mm-hmm. WNEW-AM played Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. And went over there and just, they were became one of the first in the country to play uh, album rock. That's what their focus was, album rock. So the timing was really good. And uh, uh, long story short, jumping ahead a bit, WNEW called it the album of the year for them. Wow. Was, yeah. Like, whoa, whoa. What, what was the single? What was the first single on that record? Uh, my gosh. I, I, I got to tell you, I'm, it may have been Fireball Express. Mm-hmm. It may have been that. Uh, we had four songwriter was a singer from there. Engine Joe was a single. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to my music. Back to my music, yes. And Tasty. Tall man, maybe the fastest in the land, but he was going nowhere fast. Speed ain't nothing without class. He couldn't play tasty, oh no, tasty like this man, yeah. Tasty, tasty. Ain't it time we mellow out? We had a man named Crazy Art. He overplayed his bass a lot. We had to kick him in the pants. His fingers moved like body's dance. Couldn't play tasty, oh no. Tasty like this man, yeah. Time we mellow out. We had a drummer named Joe. He played so fast we let him go. He ran away with all our songs. Now he's in school where he belongs. He couldn't play tasty. Oh no. Tasty like this man, yeah. Yes. In the bass song which was a very bizarre arrangement that we spent a lot of time on because it was the one song in the record that was not heavy, except in the moments when it needed to be heavy. It was all these jazz guitars and then they got a guitar player in the band and, and they played him, they, and so, bam. And these are all real people. This all, all of taste is true. For taste. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, read, I read on someone's blog that they knew the um, who, Crazy Art. 
that they knew yeah. Crazy Art, who who owned a record store somewhere in Long Island, and they would yes. go in and like uh, har- harass him, you know, because yes. <laughs> he, yeah, oh, yeah. he ended. For those of you who haven't heard of it, so Crazy Art is a character in the song Tasty. So yeah, you know, yeah, who, who ends yeah, up being were, let go from the band? <laughs> yeah, they were they were the the. the the album was autobiographical with all real people. I mean, this is all real. Everything in there was real. Right. Everything, every bit of it. And, and I found that extremely appealing to me because it was kind of like early Americana music. Yeah. You know, like Pete Seeger or like any of those people where they are Woody Guthrie, that they were, they were, it was truth that they were writing, their vision of truth, and Bob Dylan and, and I saw Pepe doing that in a different way than other rock and roll bands are doing. So as they're tracking, are they, are, is he ever referencing other bands? Like, I want this song to sound like X or, or Y, or, or are no, they well, just going see, for it? I very early on, whenever I produced a band, and they would bring in albums that they liked the way they sound and wanted it to sound like that, I'm very on, early on tell them, well, if you want to sound like this band, here's the phone number of their producer <laughs> and their manager. So you get all the guys from that band, yeah. you get their producer, you teach the band their song, and then you got it. So I, I just, I more than discourage that. Um, you know, some things like... <clears throat> We have quotes, we have bits of Rhapsody in Blue, we have bits of, you know, of, of other songs that are in there. Right, you've got nods to, nods to other genres and, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, especially in Tasty and, you know, that that's, you know. Are, are there songs you left off the record? Did you record more than 10? No, no. So you had 10, and did you, did the band have more than 10 songs? Yes. Okay. So, so they had a lot. So, so you picked through them to, mm-hmm. to help them decide which ones you're going to record. Yeah. I kind of looked at it as I started with them with the idea of let me plan for two albums. So he would be the first album. And then the second album, we could go heavier, but let's get an album to introduce them. So I kind of planned out two albums. That was, that was Little did I know, albums later, I'd still be banging away with the good rats. It's like, but but the sessions were intense, exhausting. They were long, and I mean long. We'd work forever. Did Did you engineer too, or did you have somebody else yeah. come in? Yeah, I engineered too. Yeah. Uh, so that's a topic and, of a different conversation. That that you come in, you're you're an instrumental, you're a guitar player on Bleecker Street, and then now you're now you're running a Neve console and uh, in your own studio. Yeah, yeah. It's like and and I had another guy, Jeff Kowalik, who engineered with me. I know. I know uh, Jeff. I know Jeff. Do you? Yeah. 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 Good he guy. used to work at a studio that I did sessions at in the '80s, where they did like karaoke tracks on 46th Street. Really? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that part of him. That had to be after House of Music because he was yes. a staff producer at House of Music. Unless it's a different Jeff, but anyway. No, there's only one Jeff yeah. Wallach, and I, <laughs> there's Jeff. And I remember him doing that vaguely, uh, but a good guy, good yes. guy and a, a very good engineer. And uh, I, I got a lot of respect for him. 
he didn't get the good rats. You know what I mean? He didn't. As a lot get of people it. don't. Yeah. You know, and he's kind of like, but but he he's a professional, and so he went for it, and then in somewhere in the record, he began to get it. You know, you, when you're tracking, are you worried like, oh my goodness, they're like th- this song could be like a jazz fusion song. This song is like a swing song, like a Benny Goodman. So this yeah. this this song is like Black Sabbath. You know. So are, are you worried that they're genre hopping? Yeah, well, here's what I tried to do. I tried to take all those genres and, you know, try to then meld them in as components of an overall sound, where if you listen to a whole album, you got it. If you listen to one song, it was confusing. But remember, yes. this is hard for people to imagine today, but there was a period when albums were very important. Yes. You bought an album. You were either a single buyer or an album buyer. Mm-hmm. And you, you listened know? to the whole thing. You played the whole thing start to finish. Yep. And so it was a different approach. You had to engage somebody for 40 minutes and, and hold their attention. So sequencing was important. The songs were important. So many things are important because you had to hold attention. Now attention span is two minutes and 30 seconds. Back then, it was 45 minutes that you had to a different, a different task at hand. Before our conversation, I was thinking and, and listening to Tasty and coming up with questions and ways that we can chat about it. And I was just wondering about the genre hopping, but yet the genre hopping is the thing that actually keeps my attention. It, it, it prevents the ear fatigue. You know, yep. they, they have instrumentals. I mean, they, 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 and I'm, I'm just, I'm one of those pers- people as well that I, I enjoy different, whatever it is. You know, I, I saw Cool in the Gang on your resume and I'm like, I love Cool in the Gang. I saw, J- you know, so like, I'm, I love that about the Good Rats, that, yeah. that they can do this, you know? Yeah. Now you got to understand too, at the same time I'm working with the Good Rats, I'm working with Cool in the Gang. So you yeah. can imagine the dichotomy in my brain uh, about this. And, and kind of, I worked in so many genres myself, from jazz with John Trope, all of these things that I did. Um, I, I kind of always wanted myself to be in the background, which is why I've never done an interview. I wanted myself to be in the background and of the music speak for itself and the bands. That was what was important to me and not me. I didn't care about being famous or about that. I hated name dropping or self-promotion. All I hated it. And, and luckily, for whatever reason, I got a reputation very early in New York. So I stayed a mainstay in New York up, up till I left and still, I mean, I'm still, most mm-hmm. of my work that I do comes out of New York. So is this your first interview ever or your first podcast? This is my first interview I've ever done. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so I am, much. I am honored. I've done, I've been on a couple of um, radio interviews with the artist Mm-hmm. And so I've kind of been in the background and said a couple of things, but myself, no, <clears throat> because <clears throat> I didn't want the attention on me and what I did. Right. You know, I, 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 in the end, I relied on the good rats because the good rats is one of the few groups that I produced that I did not play a note on. 
Oh, wow. Okay. I, I can't think of another group that I produce that I play on, except the Good Raps. And because their guitar style, where I learned a tremendous amount, it was the first beginning of really flashy guitar, because some of that technically stuff is extremely it's, difficult. It's like, groundbreaking harmonies uh, and ev everything you're talking about. And, and the harmonies in the guitar at the speed in which they're being played. amounts of guitar recording I who mean, was the endless. technician though was what did mickey do the most of the parts on the album or was it split between mickey and john it was split between the two so mickey did most of the harmony stuff he would lay down but then john the cat did most of the soloing because john the cat was an astounding technician mickey was more passionate more articulate but the flash was john the cat i mean he was at a time when speed guitar was just beginning and Ingve Malmsteen was mm -hmm. hadn't appeared yet. And all of a sudden there was this guitar playing that technically was is a jazz level, but with Marshall's cranked up. Yeah. And 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 at this time, remember, people hadn't recorded Marshall's. And recording something that loud, because back then, in order to get the sound. Nowadays, the amps that can make that sound and you yeah. can talk over them. Yeah, yeah. Back then, the only way to get that sound was to crank the amp all the way up and put the gain on 10 and let it rip. But there are technical issues in recording because microphones at that time couldn't take the sound pressure level. Mm -hmm. So it was we had to come up with new ways of recording in order to get that sound as you're as you're talking i'm thinking of i'm referencing you know bands are crossing my mind like you're 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 describing john the cat's guitar playing and i'm thinking of oh steve morse with the dixie dregs and um yeah, yeah. You're, you're referencing uh, this and that and the other thing but these are all bands that came after yeah after yeah. tasty but but you know? but a lot of these bands were brewing, like Almond Brothers, et cetera. They were, mm -hmm. they existed. Yes. They weren't famous. They existed. And how did I know? That's where I was from. Yeah. yeah. So I, this Southern rock harmony guitar thing was something I was very aware of and comfortable, though it hadn't broken out. The Southern rocks and Capricorn records hadn't existed yet. So it was still to come. And later on, I would work with the Almond Brothers and record with them. But 
Oh, because I, they were I'd like to talk to you about that as well. One of my hero bands of all time. I'm, I'm a uh, huge Dickie Betts fan. Oh, God, I, can't, yes. I can't stop talking about the fact that he, he brought them, in my opinion, as an outsider, brought them out of the ashes yes. with their number one song as the, yep. as the second guitar player steps up. And, you know, this, oh, yeah. you know he just, nothing more can be said. He turned it around. He's just, what a, what a genius, gentleman, genius. I was, believe it or not, very, very close with uh, Butch Trucks. Oh, yeah, I was very great, close. Great drummer. Yeah. yeah, great drummer. Great human being, great drummer. Lunatic, like most drummers, they're mm -hmm. crazy. But but no offense, but you guys are all insane. That's true. We it's admit. like, yes, yeah, so there's something about being a good drummer, you have to be out of your mind. And uh, But I always related to drummers because I was one of the first people to come up with complex drum miking. Like on Joe Franco's drum kit, I think we used 26 mics. Yeah. And this had not been done before because there was, from a technical point of view, there were real issues with phasing when you use multiple miking. It no longer is an issue because you're not cutting vinyl. But when you cut vinyl uh, and records, albums, so when you're mastering, phasing becomes a real critical issue about how you can get certain things recorded. When things are out of phase, then the, the cutting needle for the lathe that cuts the master for the vinyl would lift up out of the grooves. Mm. So keeping things phase coherent when you use multiple mics, very complicated. And just very. to break it down for our listeners who may not be familiar with phasing, is this the differential between like a close mic on a tom versus the room mic? Yeah. Or, yeah. okay. So. And also because I mic the top and bottom of the tom. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. And I would oh. put the bottom mic out of phase to the top mic. I'd use, and I used, for the first time I used crappy mics because i use the mics that we use live 57s now nobody did this I, before i love 57s <laughs> yes i use 57s because that's what people heard live yeah that was what people went to rock shows that's what drums sounded like to them because yeah. before that there would be like two 87s above the kit and then an re20 shoved in the bass drum with a ton of packing and i had double bass drums mm -hmm. with no packing and live drums at that point drums are always dead and they could take like basically tampons right. that would take on the drums to dead drums or a whole cloth right yeah cloth and and i was like no joey we're not putting anything in your drums you That's don't do perfect. it live i love that we're going to record this like drum sound yes now that presented real complicated technical issues. Those, those top, the, by the way, those drums sound amazing. Congratulations. And Joe played them fantastically. Oh, oh. But the toms sound so crystal clear.
been shaven, but our faces full of beard. was the arrangements to leave room for them yeah. so that you could hear them. Because back before that, whenever you had drums, you basically heard a little bit of bass drum. Double bass drum was unheard of. Yeah. I mean, remember, Vanilla Fudge hasn't yet, Carmen Apathy hasn't yet appeared on the scene. Right. So double bass drum's unheard of, and Joe Franco was amazing. And so fast on the double bass drums that when you have two bass drums like that, getting the phasing perfect is critical, especially when they're that fast, that they're so fast that it didn't give most speakers the chance to recover because the speaker nice. comes in and out to make sound. So it would be so fast. So we had to, we had to record them in a way that we, the timing was such that the speakers could reproduce it. Right. Um, because um, and back then, you couldn't have low energy things like bass, bass drums left and right. They had mm -hmm. to be in the center because you couldn't cut it. So because the, speak, the speakers couldn't handle it, am I correct in that? Yes, okay. the speakers, gotcha. they, 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 would, they, they would cancel themselves out, you'd hear nothing. But with Joe's, if you listen on his, his, they're not full left and right, but we split his double bass drums. So did you mix this? So you're talking about mix, sort of mixing yeah. now. So did you mix yeah. this as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, Everything that's done right now is music. And that's, that's so great. 
Yeah, well, it was, it was just us and Jeff Kowalikins, but it was just us and, um, uh, and then a lot of model support from my partner in the studio at the time, a guy now who's since passed, Charlie Conrad, and he was great moral support and because it would come down to almost fist fights when you're dealing with this band. You had to be strong in your opinion. I mean, a lot of F-bombs dropped, yeah. a lot of, it was just, Pepe was not about, he had his own mind about what he wanted, you know? I could, I could tell yeah. he was not a politically correct guy. And no. uh, he spoke his mind and, um, and many people talk about, you know, um, characteristics of this nature as being, you know, very admirable. Like someone who speaks their mind, and it, but when you really put it forth in this day and age, you're shunned. Right. Yes. Or, or, yep. or you're a crackpot. This is a guy that just told it to you straight up. Yeah. And, and that was it, you know? Yep. And he didn't care the consequences. Yeah. Didn't matter to him. He... So can, can you tell us about, so what, who sung? Cause the background vocal arrangements, we haven't even t touched on those background vocal arrangements are so critical yeah. as well. And yeah. They're, they're such that they're so good that they can almost be ignored. Like oh, yeah. The back, they're, yeah. They're so good, but who sung them? Was that all Peppy or did Mickey sing too? No, or? no. there was Lenny, Peppy. Oh, Lenny sung too? Okay. Mickey, yeah, those three. And the brilliance about it was is that Mickey and Peppy's voices as brothers, they had an uncanny blend of, and we also... We multi-track those backgrounds, right. you know, where we'd have maybe eight tracks of background vocals and, you know, and sometimes we didn't, but sometimes we did. And we spent a lot of time on those harmonies and the background vocal harmonies were worked out on guitars like guitar harmonies. I'm, I'm cracking up to myself because I'm thinking of the school about ups and um, right upstairs. Oh. I got me tails and top hats, black shiny shoes and silver cane. A you guys must had so much fun. <laughs> oh yeah, but to get them right, that was because that's tough to sing. It's like and and those you know diminished chords and you know and I I mean I helped introduce some of those chords to them. But that sounds like well. Definitely, I could I could see that, but that definitely sounds like a guitar. It's guitar. Riff. Yeah, yeah, it's that's guitar. a guitar riff. Yeah. Um, so you know, we live in an age where sing. You know, producers often talk about comping vocals. Did what was the vocal take process like? Did it were these through passes or? Yeah, Peppy. Peppy did not do well punching in. He couldn't recapture an emotional thread. Mm -hmm. So so he had to sing the whole song. So what we would do is generally is, I mean, everything was slight, could be slightly different. Generally, I'd have him sing it four times. And then I'd go in and listen and, and see if I need to piece it together. But 90% of those vocals or second or third take in their entirety. Wow. And even though I was totally open to comping, totally open to comping, songwriter is one take all the way to the end. And here's what's interesting. Peppy Which, went out there to sing it, 
Pepe was, let's say he wasn't Justin Timberlake, okay? He was a, a wild looking man and very like caveman-ish. Caveman-ish, right? Pepe comes out to sing songwriter, walks into the studio completely naked. I'm like, Pepe, what's going on? He says, I don't, I just, I want this to be naked. Okay, dude, I can go see for it. it. Let's be vulnerable. Yep, and, and so. Um, what take, what take was that? One take, that was the second take. That was take two? Take one could have flown as well too, but at the end of second take, his voice cracked at the end. Mm-hmm. He actually started to cry. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I felt that the build, the beginning of take one were slightly better than the beginning of take two, but I wanted the integrity of that emotional experience. So I went with the, the attitude that if nobody ever heard take one, take two would be fine at the beginning. So I went and took it all. Some of the stuff, it was comped together. Some of the stuff that you think was easy, there was a lot of vocal comping, for example, in Fireball Express, you know, but still he sang the whole song. Once in a while I'd punch him in and it rarely worked, you know, it just. I love that. I love that because it's like someone he, it's, it's as a producer, you're, you've identified the way that this artist works best and you're not making them conform to, you know, modern technology. This is how they work best. They sing the song from beginning to end, yeah. right? Or it's yeah. like the ba- like like a band playing live. If they're used to playing live, maybe they can't track, you know, or maybe they're yeah. not good. At, um, who pitched the strings? Who and who did the string arrangements? Um, how, how did those I come did. about? Um, the strings were. I, I decided I wanted to put real strings on it, so I worked with a dear friend of mine, a guy named Brian Como. Mm-hmm. And he he played the piano on the record, and he did the string arrangements with me. Uh, the two of us worked on the I write strings as well, and so we we both and I wanted Brian because I wanted he was another Italian New Jersey guy, <laughs> and understood the mentality. Right. Yes, and uh, and hit it off with them, uh, and his piano playing is brilliant. Uh, Beautiful. It's beautiful, really is. Yeah. No, he just he just, and he fit right in with the guitars. He he voiced it perfectly. Well, isn't there a piano solo on Fred Upstairs and Ginger, Ginger oh, yeah. Snappers? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, he, yeah. He plays amazing. It, he, he closes out the song, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And he plays the Rhapsody in Blue part yes. in Songwriter. It's like so. He's, but, he, but to the band, was it? They were like, were they open to having strings? Was this? No. Yeah. No. So tell tell us no. about that. Yeah. No. 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 They were no. This is like no. 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 Yeah. And we're no. We're not doing this. No. It's like no. No. You're not going to turn this into Peter Paul and Mary. We're not doing it. No, not going to happen. Once they met Brian and they just clicked together and Brian and Pepe sat and talked about arrangements and piano ideas and, and, and Brian got it all. He's a musical genius and he got it and, and Pepe fell in love with him. Like what a talent. He became like the Billy Preston of 
right. was with the Beatles as Brian was with, and Brian, we, we called him Guy Como. Like Perry Como, he's Guy Como. And, uh, and, and once the piano got involved and it was Brian gonna write it with me, they were willing to try it. Well, you can't just try strings because you're hiring 35 people. This is an expensive endeavor. Yes. You know what I mean? You don't just go in there and try it. Uh, but I found the uh, perfect uh, musical director for the orchestra I hired, a guy named Kermit Moore. Uh, once again, a super talented cellist and super talented. And they, I mean, nobody tried putting strings on a heavy rock and roll. Yeah. Okay. And it really, it really works so wonderfully, and it, but it sticks out, you know. But there's a, an issue that comes to it that guitars can never be perfectly in tune because the way that they are built, they can't be perfectly in tune. They're fourth for four strings and third, this is music theory, but they're fourth for most strings, but then there's a third in there between the mm -hmm. G and the B, and it's like, and then it goes to fourth again, which means that it can't, ever be the the b string can never be totally in tune and the low e string can't either because when you bar it you put your finger on it to press it down it'll make it a little sharp it makes the guitar sound like it does it makes that sort of beating sound that makes heavy guitars so fantastic but strings have to be right in tune okay so and and the tuning at that time was by ear they weren't tuners concert master would play an a yeah and for me i was the concert master tune up guitars in the studio here we go i had a piano in there and yeah. we tuned to that piano and that became central and and then you know i had pretty good pitch on mickey had incredible pitch for tuning mickey he's the unsung hero mm -hmm. genius guitars uh so uh, the strings I once they were done, the band was totally supportive of breaking that This was an overdub. So the band did the band track all those orchestrations with piano. I mean, as a reference. I mean, how did you lay out? No. Or, or are you muting things in the mix to get the orchestrations? Or no, 
I heard and knew what I wanted for the string parts from the beginning. So we arranged it. That, so prior to getting strings done, which was done at the very end of the record, the songs sound like there were these holes in them, you know? And the band didn't have the same imagination as I did. They always wanted to fill up those holes, you know? Right. They, they wanted to fill. So, because I'm, I'm, I've always been a producer that I like to record what I want to be on the record. I don't record more. I don't record, here's what I want to be on the record. Right. So I, I don't do a lot of, when I'm mixing for somebody else, of arrangements, muting, etc. But right. when I'm it's my own production, I kind of hear from the beginning. When I start recording, I hear finished record, and I'm just filling in the blanks. But That's I always so hear it finished. Yeah, and and then with the good rats, after we went from the first record, there's more faith for the second record, and so on. And we we continued. And and here's something real important about the good rats. So I worked on, I guess it's five records. I never made a dime from the Good Rats. <laughs> Not a dime. And, that, and that's because of studio time, because of album sales, because of what? Like Album sales, the way that recruitment happened back then, and recruitment is the record company's way of stealing from bands. Mm -hmm. So, you know, marketing dollars got recouped, lots of stuff. We sold records. Right. But... In the band didn't get royalties either. Um, they got an advance for, I got them an advance for Tasty. Um, and uh, so they had that, but they made their money live. Uh, they made some money later on as we made better deals with the different smaller distribution because at a certain point they were on, uh, uh, God, what's the record company? Passport? No, not Passport. Passport was Marty Scott. Oh, Gem. Gem? Gem was part of Marty Scott and Passport. Before that, they were on with Platinum Records, oh, yeah. the distribution. Yeah. And that was Joe and Sylvia Robinson. And they were the Black Mafia. Mm -hmm. So here we are in this Black label who... This phenomenal woman, Barbara Baker and Joe Robinson, they, they were like astounded by the soul that Pepe had in his singing. And that was Rat City in Blue, right? Yeah. Was that a Rat City in Blue? So yeah. they got it. They got it. They, and I'm they like, got it. <laughs> what? What? And it happened weird. Sylvia, who had a big hit called Pillow Talk, that yes. I did with her. Yes. She was. She was recording in that song in my studio, and she and in the, she was in one room, and I have the good raps in the other room, and she heard, and she's like, "What?" Is I said, "It's hard rock, good rap. That's not a rock and roll. That's soul." And so she went and told her husband Joe, and then we in a meeting, and lo and behold, record number two was that a New Jersey label. Yes, Englewood. Like Englewood. Gosh, there was so much music happening in Englewood with, um, who is it? All, all those jazz records were recorded at oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Rudy, Rudy Van, Van Gelder Studio. Yeah, yep. Rudy Van Gelder Studio. Yep. And I'm like, goodness, with um, yep. CTI Records. Remember? remember yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. Cree Taylor. Yep. yep. Yeah, me and we were all, my studio in West Orange, we were all oh, like this. You know, this infamous. little music mafia that we yes. were stuck together. And 
and it was a center. New Jersey was generating some serious music. I did the very first demo that uh, uh, John Bon Jovi did ever in a group called The Rest. And uh, I produced Southside Johnny. Uh, and and I, 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 you know, tight with Springsteen and all the, and Cool and the Gang. We all, we had to be tight and my, together. And my favorite Jack Bruce record. Oh, yeah. With Billy Cobham. Yep. Yep. That was, uh, yeah, that was a special record. Jack was a special friend of mine. I got to do that record and I got to do the BLT record, Bruce Lord and Trower. It's a very soulful, Uh, soulful album, that Jack Bruce and Friends record. Oh, yeah. That was very soulful, very special record. Uh, Jack and I had always wanted to work together. I knew him from Cream Days. And um, and I knew Eric and I knew all of them well. And they kind of loved hearing me play, uh, Eric, because I was playing all this crazy country shit, dulcimers yeah, yeah. and all this. And so they'd come over from England and, and they had stopped in to Gertie's Folk City while they were playing at the Cafe Gogo. And I was playing behind everybody. Mm-hmm. Like I was just the guitar player to a company. So you'd have Bob Dylan come on for a minute and then Joan Baez. And I was the one guy just stayed up on stage and the session guitar players were just becoming something where you had session guitar players playing by ear before that session guitar players read a chart. Right. And then music started to become more by ear rather than by charts. And so I was by ear and I remember seeing these three crazy English guys come in and at the end they wanted to talk to me and it was Jack and Eric and Ginger and Jack and I became friends then is before the first cream record had come out we became friends Eric and I yeah we connected but there was competitive guitar thing going on mm-hmm. and so Jack and I st- we stayed friends forever and then out of the blue after creamy called me and said I want to make a record with you so we talked about what we wanted to do I introduced him to Billy Cobham. Great. He's great on that uh, record. Yep. And uh, everybody was great on that record. David Sanchez. David was, Sanchez from E Street Band. Yep. Yep. I, you, you know your people. He's yep. a friend of mine. And just <laughs> just great. All great people. Great people. We, should we? We have a lot to talk about. Should we do a, do a part two? And yeah, let's do a part two because I actually have a session and let's, I let's, thought this would be very awkward. You made me feel so comfortable because we're just having a conversation. This is so great. I, I just and you know so much. You're so aware, like yeah. this whole soul. But but you know what? I got to tell you something. This is not to blow smoke up your butt. But I have found that drummers are the most musical of musicians. And and yeah, yeah. we we like to think I, so. I'll never publicly acknowledge that I just called you a musician. I'll never acknowledge that. Symbol, you, symbol crash in the background. Yeah, that, 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 that doesn't happen. Because, you know, I always say the drummers are these animals you kept in cages and you draw meat to and let out once in a while to play. Because the crazier the person, the better the drummer. But drummers had to assume a, a unique musicality because their method of of communication of what they did was really different from what all of us who are playing harmonics 
of it. So you guys had to be aware of all the percussion rhythm, but also the harmonics. Because it wasn't until I really started working the drummers, how you tune your drums and how, how to fit in with the group. All of that stuff became critical. And I learned a lot of that from work with Joe Franco. Because for that, drummer, yeah, yeah I, and again, who I'd never seen six tom-toms yeah. in a set. And two bass drums. Yep. Like, do you, do you ever play double bass? I I dabble with it. I have a double pedal. You do. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. But it's it's a different animal. Yeah, know. it it's, is. And and the, and the double pedals are very different than the double bass drums. Yes. yes. There's a different mechanical response. You can't get the same speed. You can't. Then you gotta adapt your whole world to play two bass drums because because you're. They're awkwardly splayed. You know what I mean? You're not, yes. It's not a normal situation. I would love to do a part two where we kind of wrap up Tasty and then, and then go into Rat City. And if there's time, I, I could talk endlessly about Rat City and Birth Comes to Us All as well. And oh, yeah. I'd like to talk about the mood of the band and in between albums and yeah, you know, working production, working toward the you know, pre-production on the next one and so on. So if, if you're up for it, we can do another. If yeah, I'm let's not, do it. We're going to hold you to that, Stefan. We'll do a part two where we'll cover the making of Rat City in Blue and Birth Comes to Us All. Well, that about does it for this episode. I want to thank my guest, Stefan Gelfus, for his time, his expertise, and for the wide-ranging and very interesting discussion about the making of Tasty by the Good Rats. You've done some great work. You've been listening to Friends in Music with me, Brian Doherty. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brian Doherty. Thank you for listening. My mechanic said there's no problem.